So let's just pray first and then we'll get in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, you are awesome. You are mighty, Lord God. Your word is power. Your word is our food. Satisfies our thirsty souls, God. I pray that you do that today in my brothers and sisters, Lord God. Allow your words to speak. Hit that spot inside of their heart, Lord God, that brings them conviction if conviction is needed. That brings comfort if that's what's needed. Encouragement if that's what's needed. Whatever, God, however you see fit. You know the hearts. You know the desires of my brothers and sisters here, Lord God. Help them to be at all with you, Lord, by your word. Pray to God this word, your word, encourage them to praise you, to seek you more, to desire to be more obedient to you, God, to follow you in all of their ways. God, may we be at all of your power that has been directed our way, God. May we praise you for that. May we not take it lightly. You have made us alive, that we are no longer dead. That we know you, that we have a relationship with you, God. Please help that thought resonate with my brothers and sisters today. So prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's read chapter two. We'll read through verses one through uh, one through three. That's what we'll do. And we'll hit verse three next week and probably verse four and five and six, but today just one and two. So Ephesians chapter two, the word of God reads, and you, Paul, remember right to these Ephesians, he says, you were dead, what? In your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, we also, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I'm going to just keep reading because I love verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith and, not, and, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Praise Jesus for good works, which God per prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Just that, that's just so good. <laughs> Verse one to 10. So I just had to keep going there. We'll eventually get there, hopefully uh, this year. <laughs> so as we ended chapter one last week, um, the Apostle Paul, remember, I mean, not last week, but last time I was here in Ephesians chapter one. Remember, the Apostle Paul was praying to the Ephesians, or he was telling the Ephesians that he's praying that they would know the power of God, right, directed towards him. And that was Paul's prayer. He was praying that God would give these Ephesians a supernatural revelation of God's power so that they would ultimately know God more. And so that's what we, we looked at the last time I was here when we looked at Ephesians. And we saw how the same power that God created the universe... I think I, I think it's right. I 
you know, Mike, and when he says the prince, the prince of the air, he's talking about the devil, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dig into that too. <laughs> so um, we saw how the same power that God used to create the universe, um, it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The same spirit that's in him that created everything. It's the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. That same power Paul showed us last time has been directed towards us. Remember, that, that's that same power that created everything that's been directed toward us. Now, this is really, this is a lofty idea, right? It's, it's hard to kind of wrap your, your brain around the fact that such power has been directed towards us and lives within us. And I'm sure that many of us, we intellectually get that, right? We get what Paul is saying intellectually, that the same power that, you know, raised Jesus from the dead is working in me. But such an idea that that spirit really dwells in me and is directed towards me, it's, it's really hard for us to fully grasp. I mean, the same power again that created Mars and Venus and the earth and light and the moon is now resting upon me and working in me for my good. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead has been directed towards me. It's like, that's really hard to really just wrap our minds around and really to get down to the root of what that means. And it's kind of like the Holy Spirit recognizes that the statement that he just inspired Paul to write is so mind-blowingly profound that here in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul goes into detail on the workings of that power that has been directed towards us. So he gives us his huge statement of, man, the same power that has been directed towards Christ has been directed towards you. And it's like, yeah, I know that's a big statement, so let me, let me dig down and show you how that power works. And so we go from chapter one or the end of chapter one, which shows the role of the power of God in Christ and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father to the beginning of chapter two, the power of God in our resurrection and our ascension to the heavenly places. But the, the common denominator in this is the power of God. The power of God in the end is the one that raises Christ up from the dead. The power of God in chapter two is the same thing he's getting at. It's the one that, that raises us up from the dead. So the power of God is, is the main thing. So Paul is really set on these Ephesians knowing the power of God that has been directed to them. It's, it's like he's saying, Ephesians, you, you really have to get this. He really wants to make this clear to these Ephesians and not just the Ephesians, but all Christians and all readers who are, who are reading this letter. He wants them to know God's power working mightily in you. And the way that he does this is by taking us on a stroll down memory lane. In order for Paul to show the Ephesians the power of God directed towards them, or to show Christians the power of God directed towards them, he wants he takes us down a stroll um, or stroll down memory lane. He points out to the Ephesians, he, he brings out their life before Christ. And he reminds him of their three biggest foes and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the, the role that your three biggest foes have played into your spiritual death. And those foes are, as you'll see in here, it's the world, the devil, and the flesh. So those are the three foes that Paul will bring out here in the beginning of this chapter to, to remind us of how we had a life before Christ. 
And yes, we understand that in Adam, all die and all are spiritually dead. We were born spiritually dead. But Paul here in chapter two, at the beginning of Ephesians here, he's not so much focusing on our sins, or I'm sorry, on Adam's sins, but he's focusing on our sins and trespasses, the, the sins that the Ephesians committed themselves through walking according to the ways of the world and being under the control and dominion of Satan and the flesh. So again, he starts his text by saying, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that before you became a disciple of Jesus Christ, be, before you knew truly knew Jesus and the pardoning of your sins, that you were spiritually dead. Do you really get that? That you were dead. You had no spiritual life in you. And again, we're not talking about physical death, but we're talking about spiritual death. That's, that's the way the Bible describes us. Before we encountered Christ, before we had Holy Spirit working inside of us, you were dead spiritually. I mean, you were dead. You had no spiritual life inside of you. Yes, you were walking around, but you were spiritually dead. There was no pulse inside of you. Why? Because of your sins and trespasses, which we'll, we'll get into. But this is really what Jesus was getting at in, in the Gospels, for example. When, in, in John 5, 25, when, when, when Jesus made this statement, he, he said this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will, will live. There in John 5, Jesus was not talking about the physically dead. He'll later talk about the physically dead in verse 28 when he talks about those coming out of the tomb. But he was talking about the spiritually dead, hearing the voice of Jesus and by the power of God resurrecting and coming alive or coming to life. Which It, it kind of reminds me of zombie movies. I don't know if some of you ever seen a zombie movie, right? You know the plot of a zombie movie, right? With a zombie movie, you have a person who's like dead in the grave. Then it's a dark night and all of a sudden lightning strikes. And then all of a sudden their eyes pop open, right? From the grave. And then all of a sudden their eyes pop open. And they begin to tear out the casket and tear out the grave. And they're coming out of the dirt. In a similar way, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And so when Paul says here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, sins meaning that we constantly fell short of God's standard. We were constantly missing the mark, never, never hitting the standard that God has called for us. And when he says trespasses, he's talking about the word in Greek, it's to veer off on the side. It's not walking along God's path, but it's to walk on the side of the road and kind of go our own path and go our own way, which is why, again, Paul, when he says you are dead in trespasses and sins, he's not, again, referring to Adam's sins, but he's talking about our sins, which is why in verse two, he uses the word walked. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, meaning that you were actively doing this sin. That's the sin he's, he's pointing out. Paul is not here blaming Adam, which we all have our sin and our fallenness in Adam, but he's, he's wanting the Ephesians to go and look in the mirror at, them own, at their own selves. So he says, you walked actively in trespasses and sins, and it killed you, and it led to our spiritual death. Yes, you were, some of us, we were still engaged in religious practices, going to church, maybe reading our Bible, but still we were, we were spiritually dead. 
We've been going to church and the word will come in our ear and it'll go right out. We would hear pastors preach the word or we hear our loved ones tell us about God and tell us to repent. We hear uncles and aunties and cousins and uncles tell us to repent and turn to Jesus. But because we were spiritually dead, it just went in one ear out of the other. Nothing happened. But then all of a sudden, like those zombies when a lightning strike, the voice of Jesus broke through and you were awakened by the voice of Jesus. His voice broke through your dead ears. You begin to come alive. Your dead soul began to come alive and you begin to see Jesus as he really is. Some of you were at church when you heard that voice when it came to your, your dead ears. And, and some of you were maybe at youth group when that voice came through and to your dead ears and your dead soul. Or some of you may have been home suicidal with the gun pointed to your head or with the bottle of pills in your hand with the noose tied around your neck or maybe you were laying on the side of the bed of the last girl or guy that you slept with but it was then in the deadness of your sin that the voice of Christ broke through and you heard those words of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or you heard those words coming to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest or you heard those words that I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. The voice of Christ, as Jesus said in John 5, it, it broke through. And you and your dead soul, because of your sins and trespasses, came alive. Me personally, I think about the time I heard the voice of Christ in the deadness of my sins and trespasses. Guess what? I had no little to no theology. All I knew is that God was speaking to me. And what I did not know at that moment was when the gospel was coming clear to me, when I was understanding the Bible truly as the word of God, at that very moment, a miracle was taking place. A spiritually dead soul was coming to life. Jesus broke through. The power of God, as Paul says, came upon me and it came upon you. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We as Christians, we tend to forget this. As I always mentioned, we get this spiritual amnesia we forget the moments when our dead soul came to life. More than that, we forget our BC life. We see people enslaved to sin. We sometimes whisper to ourselves, how could a person act such a way? How could a person talk such a way? How could a woman dress such a way? In that moment, we forget how we were so heavy laden with sin. We used to talk crazy too. We use harsh words too. We too were just like some of the same people that we rolled our eyes at. Well, in case you forgot that, Paul is here to remind not just us, but the Ephesians of that life. And here when he reminds the Ephesians of that life, when he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he is not reminding the Ephesians of their old life to shame them. That's not why he's bringing it up. He's, he's bringing it up so that they will see the power of God that has been directed towards them. He's not reminding them of their old life so they can see how far they have come. They can pat themselves on the back and say, boy, I was bad, but look how holy I have become by my own actions and my own will. No, that's not why he's telling them this. He's telling them to go down memory lane because you would then see that the power of God has come upon you. He wants them to see that. He wants him to see that it wasn't them. Yes, sure, they may have cooperated with the Holy Spirit, but by and large, it was the work of God in them being transformed and them turning away from sin. That was the power of God directed towards you, brothers and sisters. The power of God. 
Aren't you thankful for the power of God? Right now, the power of God, brothers and sisters, is resting upon you. That is why you're here in this place on a Sunday. That is why you have your Bibles in your hand and we're praying and we're singing songs. Why? Because the power of God has done a work inside of our mind and our hearts and it has brought us to this place. The reason why you are overcoming sin now, because the power of God has been directed towards you. The reason you are growing in holiness and your love for Christ is not you. Get off of you. It is the power of God doing its work in you. And that, but it has not always been this way. It was not always this way for the Ephesians too. They walked according to the ways of the world, which is what Paul says in verse 2. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins when you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In the past, when I would hear a preacher or somebody teaching the word of God, talking about walking according to the course of this world or living worldly or worldly living, my initial thought was this. It was the guy in Vegas. That's the worldly living guy. That's the guy that's walking according to this world. It's the guy in Vegas, gambling, strip clubs, materialistic, multiple women, multiple cars, just living according to the world. That's worldly. That, that's worldly living. That was my thought. Or, or I'm thinking prodigal son. That's worldly living, right? Like King James says, he was living, he had, uh, he was doing riotous living. I'm, I'm thinking that's worldliness. That's worldly living, the prodigal son. See, my definition of worldly and some of you, your definition of worldly living or walking according to the course of this world is, guess what? It's some extreme behavior. It's some extreme behavior. And the reason I'm telling you this it's because if you do not have a proper understanding of worldliness, then one of three things will happen. If you don't understand what it is to walk according to the course of this world, if you're not fully grasping what it means to be worldly, then one of three things will happen. One, you will not have a proper view of your past life, which will inhibit you from fully understanding the power of God that has been directed your way. Meaning you will look at your life and say, yes, I was worldly, but not that worldly. Because why? I wasn't the extreme of my own definition of worldly. So that's one thing that it stops you from doing. Two, the other is, with our weak definition of worldliness, or walking according to the course of this world, the worldly habits that you currently they would not be recognized as so. Why? Because I'm not doing the extreme behavior that I consider worldliness to be. Thirdly, without a proper definition or understanding of worldliness, you open the door to Satan and doubt and even diminish the glory of God. And let me really dig into that third one, what I mean by you open the door of Satan and doubt and diminish. I'm sure that some of you including myself, I've heard this from other people, you have this internal dialogue. You look at your life, you look at yourself, and you've been, you begin to question whether, one, you're really saved or not, and if the Holy Spirit and power of God is really upon you. You're looking at yourself to see how much you've changed, and yes, you see a little bit of change here and there, but nothing major. After all, you were never really in the world like that anyways. I should remember because our definition of worldly is so light. This, you got to understand, this is Satan's trick. For many people, as our brother mentioned over here, um, how do I say this? Satan's trick for many people is to guilt them into thinking that they're so bad, that they're so wrong, that God will never accept them. 
That's one way that Satan tricks people and tempts people. But for the vast majority of people, since most people think that they are good people themselves, ultimately he takes our testimony right out of our mouth because you look at your life and you say, I was not really worldly at, at all in the first place. Sure, I may have, God may have changed a few things here and there, but I do not see the power of God really working mightily in me. And that's what we do. Satan right there by that type of thinking robs you out of your testimony. He takes the testimony out of your life, which is why we have a thing in a church called testimony guilt. Are you familiar with testimony guilt? Many people, if you didn't notice, there's many people in the church, they do not like sharing their testimony. And the reason they don't like sharing their testimony in church with Christians is because in the church, you got to understand this, in the church, we all play a role in this. We love the person's testimony who was hooked on drugs, Maybe they did some jail time, some prison time, or they were out there living these extremely worldly lives. And we look at them and we say, whoa, now that's the power of God. That's the power of God. Whoa, this person was living this such a way, and now they're clean and they're preaching the gospel. And we say, that is the power of God, right? Because we see something and we see, we can visibly see a person moving from death and going to life. And so we say, that is the power of God. But we look at our own lives and we don't see that type of transformation. And so we begin to think, whoa, maybe my testimony is not valid. And so that's why some people don't want to share their testimony. One of my favorite artists, he had a song about this called My Testimony and saying how, man, I don't have a horror story testimony, but yet God still worked in me. See, matter of fact, in, in some of the tr churches that I grew up in, the tradition that I, I came up in, they had a term called test lying like testifying, test the lying, they would say. When people, they go before the church and they start lying about all the stuff that God is doing and people in the church are just going crazy. And after that, they're just giving you all these accolades. They're just lying to get attention. They call that test the lying. Why do people do that? Because we know in the church, we, we love the people that have those extreme testimonies. We love to say, whoa, that is the power of God. But when we look at ourselves and you say, wait, I didn't grow up on a rough side of town, or maybe I had a decent upbringing, or I didn't have any run-ins with the law, or yeah, maybe I got drunk a couple of times, but not that much, or yes, maybe I went to a couple of parties, but not so much. I, I really don't see the power of God directing towards me like other people. I, I guess I wasn't really that worldly anyway, so I'm not really seeing this power that Paul is talking about, this, this worldly living that I was once in when, when I really wasn't in it in the first place. See, that's, that's the trick that the enemy does with that type of thinking. We're not properly understanding worldliness. See, what we fail to understand with thinking that way, we fail to understand this, brothers and sisters. There is no neutral life. There is no neutral living. In this life here on this earth, you are in one of two places. You are in and governed by the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness that we looked at today in our opening text, or you are in the kingdom of God and of God's son. That's it. There is no middle ground. There is no like, yes, I wasn't fully following Christ, but I wasn't really in the world following. Say no, there, there is no middle ground here. Either you were with Satan or you're with God. That's just it. There is no middle ground. So Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13, for he, like we looked at, he rescued us. 
from the power of darkness. Again, Paul includes himself in there. So prior to Paul being in the kingdom of God, son, where is Paul saying in Colossians 1.13 where he was before? In the domain of darkness. So brothers and sisters, there is no neutral place. Either you were living for God or you're living for the devil. And since the devil was called the God of this world, guess what? The ways of this world are influenced by him. 1 John 5.19 says this, For we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the ways or the course of this world, worldliness, guess what? They are influenced by Satan. And the ways of Satan are opposite of God. So the opposite of godliness is worldliness. This means then, that not only is the guy or the girl whose life is tied to the Vegas nightlife of strip clubs and drugs and partying living a worldly life, but so too is the guy or the girl who obeys all of the laws of the land, yet only loves those who love her, her family members, and her friends. If you say that I wasn't worldly, or, or if you say that you know that's worldly and I wasn't really worldly, that my life looked like everybody else, a, a normal life, then guess what? then that is the definition of worldly. When your life looks like everyone else around you in the world, when there is no distinctive, my friend, you are very worldly. Whether you are in clubs or bars, whether you are sleeping around or not, as Christians, we are called to be salt and light. And when you are not salt and light, that means you are just blending in with the darkness of this world, meaning that you are worldly. Whether you was out murdering or not, whether you were out getting drunk or not, if you're following the course of this world, if you're not being distinct and letting your light shine for Jesus, you are worldly. So the truth of the matter is, my brothers and sisters, here's the truth. You and I, we are more wicked, more evil than we could have ever imagined. I know we think we're good people like most people thought they were just okay. But you guess what? You were more worldly than you could ever imagine. You got to understand that that truth. And guess what? Worldliness, walking according to the course of this world that Paul is pointing the Ephesians to, worldliness, guess what? It looks different depending on the context that you are in. So American worldliness looks a little different from Nigerian worldliness or walking according to the course of this world. And in and, and, and Ephesus, for example, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. In Ephesus, in pretty much the first century, you had one, multiple deities, right? Everywhere. And as I mentioned this before, if your family worshipped a god, a particular deity, that was a deity that you worshipped. That's just what you did. And if your city had a particular deity, and you were brought up, born in this city, then that's just what you did. And for the Ephesians, you got to understand, they worship Diana. They worship Artemis. Why? Because the culture and world around them, that is what taught them to do this. That was a part of their world. That was their worldliness. That was the culture around them, discipling them. This is who you worship. You worship Artemis. You're an Ephesian. This is who you are. This is your culture. This is your heritage. This is what we as Ephesians do. We worship Artemis. It's a part of your culture, our heritage. And, and, and how we know this is back in Acts 19, when the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus, remember, the Apostle is preaching the gospel everywhere in Ephesus. And, and there's this loud uproar in the city. Why? Because people are being converted. The gospel is going forward. 
People are hearing Jesus. People are um, leaving Diana. They're leaving their shrines and they're leaving their temples. And um, who do we have? What's the guy named Demetrius, right? He, he was a, a silversmith or a craftsman. He's the one who would make these shrines for Diana and he would sell them. It was part of his business. When he catches wind of what Paul is doing, what is Demetrius going to do? He goes and get all of his craftsmen, people who work in the same industry, and they will get all the men, of, the men of the city of Ephesus, and they start like this large uproar in the city. It's just going crazy. People, it probably look a lot like the scenes we just seen on TV with the protests, right, in Ephesus. That's what we see in Acts 19. People are just protesting. They're going crazy because Demetrius has got all these people in the uproar because they're dissing, dissing. Yes, I'm using dissing. Diana. So there's all this commotion. And what Acts 19, 34 says is, this is so vital. Doing all this commotion over what Paul is doing and preaching the gospel, Acts 19, 34 says this, that the Ephesians were yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. You see this. If they were just yelling, greatest Artemis, Guess what? That would be religion. But the fact that they are yelling Artemis of the Ephesians, now that is culture. See, the Ephesians are saying, Artemis, this is us. The Ephesians, this is what we have contributed to the world. Artemis is from us. This is our town. The temple of, of, of Artemis, or Diana, Diana, during the ancient time, was considered to be one of the great seven wonders of the world. One of the most beautiful buildings in all of the world. So this was their culture. Diana was who they were. It wasn't just a religion, but this is who they were as a people. Their culture was Diana, was worshiping this goddess. This is what people came to Ephesus to see, this large temple. So Diana was really not just religion, it was their culture. Which tells us this, brothers and sisters, when you're wondering how worldly I was I, or was I really worldly, do you not know that culture, your culture, it's a form of worldliness, especially when your culture disciples you into living a way that is not godly. As I was working on this sermon, I was typing and I turned around and I sat on my footstool because I was just really stuck by this revelation of culture being a subtle form of worldliness. And it just really knocked me off my block because I just really didn't consider it that way. And so I'm sitting down on my stool and I looked it's always my closet <laughs> I looked in my closet because I have an open closet and all I seen was just tons of shoes I have a lot of shoes brothers and sisters because guess what I grew up in the shoe culture I grew up in the culture of Jordans etc and the shoe culture teaches you to accumulate shoes, expensive shoes. But my Bible teaches me to care for the poor. And my Bible teaches me to be a good steward with my money. And my Bible tells me that there's other poor people in the world that could actually use some of my shoes. That's where my culture is discipling me against things of God. That's worldliness. One of my, back to Christian rap, I mentioned that earlier, I'm gonna go there again. Uh, one of my favorite Christian artists, Andy Mineo, um, he has this song that's really profound, and he has this lyric in this song. And here's the lyric in this song that really sticks to me. If you grew up in a shoe, shoe culture, this sticks to you. 
he says this in the song, I have to answer to God for all of these new sneaks, meaning sneakers. He says, I have a hundred different pair, but only two feet. Imagine that in the room. I have to answer to God. I can't rap it like him, but he's like, I have to answer to God for all these new sneaks. I have a hundred different pair, but only two feet. And guess what? It gets deeper than shoes when it comes to culture. Women for you, it may be purses. It may be clothes. It may be hair products. It may be beauty products. It may be makeup. Guys, it may be hunting. It may be gaming. Next to that, guess what? You have political alialis, the reason that you believe the way you do. Why? It's partly because of the subculture that you grew up in, the world around you, that subworld that taught you to think a certain way. See, all of these are forms of worldliness. That's why when Paul said that you walked formally according to the course of this world, these are the things that we have to consider. Back to our, our, our popular topic today on racism. Many people have different views on ethnicity. Why? Because of the subculture and the world that they grew up in. It played a major role in that. While not all of culture is bad, there are parts of culture that have contributed to your spiritual deadness, brothers and sisters, that have led to your trespasses and sins. And that is what Paul is doing or pointing out to the Ephesians, your culture, the world around you. You're walking according to the course of this world. But by the power of God directed our way, brothers and sisters, we have been broken out and are continually breaking out of this worldly culture and these subcultures around us. And that is something that we can praise God for. So Paul is telling these Ephesians and here he's like, Ephesians, remember, you walked according to the course of this world. Your mind were on the temporal things, which is worldly. Your mind was not on being salt and light. Your mind was not on serving God and having the mind of Christ and thinking on eternal things. But you were just like you're thinking on the things of this world, your culture, things around you. But now that the power of God has come upon you, you're focusing on the godly things, the, the, the things that matter. See, that's where the power of God makes a difference in our lives. Brothers and sisters, do you see that in your own lives? How you before were under the culture, but now by the power of God, you even think different. So Paul is showing the Ephesians there. It's this worldly life you were living, but now the power of God has come upon you. So that's why you're different. That's why you're not enslaved to this world and your culture like you were. Now, as Paul continues to walk down memory lane, not only does he remind these Ephesians that they were dead in their sins and trespasses as they walked according to the course of this world, but here's key what he does. But he reminds them that they were under the power and influence of Satan as they did it. Step back and let that breathe. Not only did we walk according to the course of this world, not only were you walking according to the ways of this world, but you were under the influence and power of the prince of the power of the air as you did it and lived it. Now that is a scary thought to know and to believe that I was under the power and the influence of Satan, like a puppeteer pulling the strings of his puppet. Satan had influence and power over our lives. In our minds, we, we think this. In our minds, we think, yeah, I was bad, but under the power and influence of Satan, it's like, mm, I don't know about that, right? See, many of us have that thought largely because of media and movies. When we think of somebody under the influence and power or control of Satan, we think of what? Serial killers, right? We think of Charles Manson, we think of Jeffrey Dahmer, we, we think of psychopath, we say that, per that person is under Satan's influence, that person is under Satan's power, that is evil, that is demonic. But 
let me show you something here in this text. Look what Paul says here in back in two. He says, in what you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, look what he says, of the spirit, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This word disobedience there is the Greek word apatheos. And that word means disobedient, or not disobedient, but to disbelieve, to willfully not believe. And so Paul is saying, these children of disobedience, the reason that they were willfully not believing is because that there was a spirit at work in the people where they could not see the gospel, where they could not see Jesus. Paul is really speaking about 2 Corinthians 4, 4, where he talks about Satan being the God of this world, blinding the mind of the unbelieving. So he says, these children who are the sons of disobedience, he says that there's a spirit at work in them. There's a spirit there. Matter of fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. I want to show you something. 2 Corinthians. Yeah, let me get there. Yeah, 4 4. Oh, where am I? I'm in First Corinthians. So, again, like, before we get there, I just want to get you to this point that Paul is saying that there's a spirit at work coming from the prince of the power of the air that is working in these children of disobedience, the ones that are disbelieving. So, you wonder why people are not believing when you preach the gospel, you, you must understand that there's a spirit at work there. And Paul explains this spirit another way in the second Corinthians 4, 4, where he will look here and see. So I want to show you what he says here. I'm starting three and I'm come down to four. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, this is Paul preaching the gospel. It is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan, by his power, by his spirit, has blinded their minds. He has blinded their eyes. He has blinded their hearts that they cannot see the gospel, which means the atheists, the Buddhists, the Muslims, guess what? They're all under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Now, what you must understand is I said that point to make this point. When we think people who are under the control influence of Satan, we think of serial, serial killers, psychopaths. But Paul is showing that it's not a psychopath, but it's the person who's disbelieving. It's the person who's not believing the gospel, who can be an atheist, who can be a Buddhist, who can be a Muslim. And guess what? The average atheist is not out there murdering folks, even though he's controlled by the same spirit. I know nice atheists. I know people of other religions who are nice, but guess what? They're still under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. They're still a children of disobedience, meaning that they're not believing the gospel and believing God's son. They're still spiritually dead and in their flesh. And that's Paul's point here, that the ones who are disbelieving that's that same spirit. That same spirit that's in the psychopath is also the same spirit that's working in the hearts of the disbelieving. It's the same spirit that's causing the blinders on those who don't see the gospel. You got to understand, this is a spiritual battle that Paul is pointing to here. 
these children of disobedience, these children of this disbelief. He's saying that there's a spirit at work there, and that spirit is not always going to lead you to serial killers. And that's why we don't believe that we have been under the influence of power of Satan. Why? Because we have this faulty idea that to be under the control of Satan is I'm doing some extreme violent behavior. But no, it's disbelief. It's not believing in the gospel. It's not believing in Jesus. That's the work of the prince of the power of the air. Along with our flesh, we'll get there next week. And I want to show you how Paul points this out, that the people who are the children of disobedience, who are not believing the gospel, are not just murderers and rapists, but doing regular sinful things. He shows us this in, in Ephesians 5. I'm going to show you this real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 3 through 4. Paul is here is going to show you the behavior of the children of disobedience. The same one he just mentioned here in Ephesians 2, 2. He's going to bring up the same group here in Ephesians 5, 3. And he's going to explain their behavior. And guess what? You're not going to see serial killer. You're not going to see rapists. Yet they're controlled by Satan. Yes, they're controlled by the prince of the power of the air. Look what he says in 3. He says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Six, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things that he just described, guess what? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he's describing the activity of the sons of disobedience, the same ones who are controlled by Satan and the prince of the power of the air. And he doesn't mention murder, but he mentions things, simple things. He says immorality and impurity, which is pretty vague, but he goes on deeper and he says greed. Do we understand that that greed that was in us, especially if we're living in, in the world outside of Christ, that was also a work of the prince of the power of the air having its way. Or verse 4, when he says there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jest. And it's funny or interesting how today we were talking about bad jokes. Guys, did you know that when you were with your guys and you're huddled around and you're objectifying women and you're talking about women's body parts and you're talking, discussing about different women and different things in society, did you know that the prince of the power of the air was having his influence and his spirit was working in you in those moments? That's what Paul is describing as the children of disobedience, the one who have the spirit of the prince of the power of the air working in them. This is what I mean, that Satan's power is real, brothers and sisters. It's not just in those extreme actions, but it's in the small little things here that Paul is pointing out there in Ephesians 5. See, Satan is powerful. He has a work. He, he has strength. Yes, Satan is powerful, brothers and sisters, but you must also realize that he is not all-powerful. But he does have power, which is why Paul in Ephesians 2, 2 gives him this title of the prince of the power of the air. Your translation may say the ruler of the power of the air. Princes and rulers, guess what? They have power. That's why Paul says he's the prince of the power. Paul is even identifying that Satan has power by saying the prince of the power of the air. Now, this, this word power of the air, it's, it's a difficult one to really get. Um, biblical scholars have kind of debated this forever. I'm not exactly clear on what Paul is getting at. When you look at Paul's phrase here, calling Satan the prince of the power of the year, and when you look at Ephesians 6, 12, 
where he says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly or high places. When you look at these verses, there seems to be another realm, a spiritual realm where the spiritual forces of darkness are operating, things that we can't even see. See, even right now, there's things happening that you and I can't even see in the spiritual realm. Talk about amens, angels, and demons. There's things that we can't even see that's happening in the spiritual realm. And it is in this spiritual realm where Satan seems to have some clout. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. So, so this realm that Satan is in, talking about spiritual warfare, he seems to have some power, some clout here in this particular realm. So again, Satan has power. He has influence. And not only does Paul recognize that Satan has power and some real authority, so to speak, but Jesus does as well. John 12, 31, Jesus says this, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus identifies Satan as the ruler of this world. Rulers have power. Rulers have authority. So he's recognized Satan has power. John 14, 30, Jesus said to his disciples, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. John 6, 11, again, he calls Satan the ruler of this world. As a fallen angel, Satan is powerful. Guess what? More powerful than you and I naturally. We are no match for Satan. Guess what? Not even physically, let alone spiritually. Physically, do you, do you remember the demon possessed man in Mark chapter 5? Mark chapter 5, verse um, one through five, where Mark said that there was a demon-possessed man with these unclean spirits. He was possessed by devils and that no one could bind him, that he would even break chains. Mark says this in, in Mark chapter five, verse four. He says, talking about the man who was demon-possessed by Satan, the spirit of Satan. He says, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, no one was strong enough to sur subdue him. So physically, brothers and sisters, let alone spiritually, you can't match with Satan. Chains, he was breaking them off, that demon-possessed man. Nobody could subdue him. You can't match with Satan and his power, not you naturally in yourself. What about intellectually? Nope, intellectually we can't box with Satan. You know why? Jesus calls Satan in John 4, 8, 4, 4, the father of lies, meaning that he is the master of it. He is the creator of it. Satan is good with lies. That's why the Bible says in Revelation 12, 9, that he deceives the whole world, which means that, guess what? Satan intellectually has a way with words. I mean, he can convince a whole nation that another nation is evil and should be exterminated. I'm talking about Nazi Germany and the Jewish people. He, convinced, he can convince a whole people that people of lighter skin are more valuable than people of darker skin. I'm talking about racism. See, intellectually, Satan is good with words. Do you remember how he deceived Eve in the garden? And Eve, guess what? She didn't even have a fallen sinful flesh to deal with. Yet Satan, through his lies, was able to deceive her. So you and I, naturally, we are no match for Satan. So are you starting to see and understand how when you were lost in this world, walking according to the course of this world, that you were under the power and the influence of the prince of the power of the air? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? 
This is why you need the power of God directed your way. Without this power, you would still be under the yoke of the prince of the power of the air. You would still be walking lock, step, and barrel with the ways of the, this world. But by the power of God directed towards you through a Messiah, you have been set free. You have power now. The power of God has been directed towards you through this Messiah. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Turn with me to another text. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. I want to show you verse 22 to 27. I want to show you how the power of God has come through this Messiah to set you free from the bondage of sin of Satan. So you can see the power of God directing your way. That's the whole purpose of this, so you can see the power of God. In Mark 3, 22 through 27, you have the, the scribes. They're accusing Jesus of being, uh, being possessed by Beelzebub, the devil, and saying that Jesus is casting out rulers by the devils. And let, let me read to you what Jesus says after he, they're making these statements on him. And it says, and he called them to himself, and he began to speak to them in parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Here goes the key text, what I wanted to bring you to. He says, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Who's the strong man here in this text? The strong man is Satan. Jesus has been plundering his house. How did he plunder his house? What does he do first to Satan? He binds Satan. He binds the strong man. He does something that we can't do. We can't bind the strong man. We can't battle with Satan. But yet Jesus goes. He goes and he binds the, the, the strong man. And what does he do after that? It says he begins to take his possessions. He begins to take them back. Guess whose possession you and I were under? We were under the control, as Paul says, the control of the prince of the power of the air. We were under his possession. But when the Messiah came, the power of God came and he bind the strong man and he set the captives free. He set us free. Why? The power of God came upon us. He came and defeated an enemy that we cannot defeat. See, that's the power of God. That's through a Messiah. That is why we're no longer enslaved to this prince of the power of the air. That's why that spirit is no longer working mighty in us. Why? Because Jesus has come and he has bound the strong man and he has set the captives free. And now we can walk in the freedom of Christ. Why? The power of God. That's it. Jesus is the only one strong enough to box with Satan. You and I can't. He boxes and he wins. It's his power. And this is why it astounds me when people begin to give themselves credit in their own salvation as if you broke the power of Satan by your own ways, by you being dead in your sinful flesh. You went and removed the blindness from one of the most powerful creatures in this world and you in your sinful flesh dead turned to Jesus. Are you serious? Do you, we just seen how strong Satan was. You and your natural flesh, you can't overcome this. You need the power of God directed your way. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 5, uh, 25 to 26 that we were bound by Satan in this trap doing his will. 
You can't break that trap unless God does something. But the power of God was directed our way. When that power was directed your way, then the chains fell off your hands. Then the chains fell off your ankles. Then the chains fell off your mind and you begin to follow Christ. See, Christ set you free. It was the power of God that regenerated you so that you can now see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It wasn't us. It wasn't you by your own work removing binders. Again, you're not powerful enough to box with Satan. Not in your sinful fallenness, not in your flesh. You're no match. It's the work and power of God directed towards you. And that's why Paul is going there in Ephesians. He's reminding them, you were captive by Satan. His spirit controlled you. You were dead in your flesh. But now the power of God has come upon you and you're walking in the newness of life. And my brothers and sisters, guess what? This never gets old. This never gets old. Understand that I was bound in this sin. I was enslaved and Christ has come and set us free. That's why Paul is telling the same thing to these Ephesians. These Ephesians were saved. They were believers. Remember Paul said, I heard about your faith and your love towards the brethren. They were believers. They were already saved. But Paul is reminding them to walk down memory lane, to remember who you once were, and to remember how the power of God came and set you free. And so we don't get, we don't get uh, tired of this. We dig on this. Really, we learn from children. Have you ever seen a, ch a child watch a movie? I have a four-year-old. See, there, there's something unique about kids in movies. Kids in movies, they can watch the same movie 10 times straight. And every time at their favorite scene, as if they're watching it for the first time. I think about my daughter, Riley. She likes the movie Frozen, Frozen 2. She'll watch that movie back to back if we let her. And even more. And guess what? When her favorite scene comes, she still finds joy and excitement every time, even though she just watched that same scene 30 minutes ago. Brothers and sisters, this should be our reaction when we think about the goodness of God, when we think about the power directed our way, when we think about our life before Christ, when God opened our eyes to see Jesus, it should fill us with awe. It should fill us with wonder. It should bring us to praise. We were once dead in our sins, held captive by Satan, walking according to the ways of this world, but now we are walking in the freedom of Jesus Christ. That's something that should keep us at all. Brothers and sisters, you have to go down memory lane. You can't forget what God has done. It was by the Lord's grace that he would constantly remind Israel in the Old Testament how he brought them out of Egypt. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see God making a statement like he does in Exodus 22, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're going to find that phrase all throughout the Old Testament. Where God is constantly reminding Israel, you were enslaved in Egypt. You were in bondage, but I set you free. That's the same thing for us, brothers and sisters. You must remember that you too were in Israel. Brother Anthony, I mean, sorry, in Egypt. Brother Anthony, you were in Egypt before, figuratively. That's how the Bible uses Egypt, figuratively, as a place of bondage and being enslaved to sin. Brother Oleg, you were in Egypt. Sister Linda, you were in Egypt. Brother Emil and Anna, you all were in Egypt. We were in Egypt, walking according to the course of this world under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, which was typified by Pharaoh. 
But then the power of God came and it broke through and it set you free. To now you think differently. You have the mind of Christ now. Or you're growing in the mind of Christ. That mind is becoming more and more of a reality. Now your heart breaks when you see people in bondage to sin. Talking about righteous indignation. That didn't happen prior to the power of God coming on you. And that is what Paul is trying to get these Ephesians to see. God's power is mightily upon you, brothers and sisters. Praise God for it. That power should lead you to obedience. That power should lead you to praise. The fact that it's working in you right now, that you have a new mind right now, that when you hear just me reading the words of God, it does something inside of your spirit. When you hear God's word read, that's the power of God. When you, when you hear a psalm read and, and it does something to you, it, it moves in your, your spirit and your heart, and that's the power of God working, and you didn't have that before. You were bound. But now because of the power of God directed your way, you feel it, you see it, and you know it. So this is something, my brothers and sisters, you got to reflect on. you got to see it. you got to think on these things. You got to think God's power has worked mightily in my life in the past. It has brought me this long way. So I know it's going to work for my future as well. And that's a perspective that we must keep. Now, um, next week, we'll hit on the flesh. I wanted to do the flesh, but just these, these texts was just so heavy. Today, we just focus on the, the world and the devil. But next week, we'll hit on the flesh. Because not only you have Satan pushing you towards walking according to the world, you have this flesh that wants to go that way anyways. So now you got all these three things. You really, again, need the power of God. How else are you going to break free? Flesh, Satan, the devil, you can't naturally do that. You need the power of God directed your way. And again, Paul is going to transition to that but God. He's going to show up. God resurrects us by his power and makes us alive. So we'll get there next week, but that's just today. Um, let us pray, and then we'll open it up for questions, brothers. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being so good to us, God. We thank you for opening our eyes, sending your voice, Jesus, awakening our dead soul and giving us life that we can hear you and see you. Thank you for your power that has been directed our way, Lord God, that now we can walk in righteousness. We follow you, no longer enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. His spirit is no longer having this way inside of us, but your Holy Spirit working mightily in us, God. And we say thank you for that. Thank you for your power, Lord God, that works upon us. Thank you for having a, for thinking of us, as the psalmist says, your thoughts towards us, God, that you would give us your spirit. You would allow your spirit to reside in these clay vessels. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We are powerful in you, Lord God. Nothing in our flesh. We praise you, Lord. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.